What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the TMT Time Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Rothstein, and I am here today with my partner in our Northern California offices, Vanita Kailasanath, who is an expert and has a ton of expertise in bridging the digital health divide, and that's what she's here to talk with us about. Vanita, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Evan. Happy to be here chatting about a topic I care a lot about and think a lot about. And it is a topic that is on the tip of everybody's tongue with all the digital health stuff going on in the world right now, obviously with COVID. So I'm really excited to dive in and learn more about how digital data, technology, IP, and the healthcare industry intersect. But before I get there, I am, of course, going to go back to your background, which is the most interesting thing about you, and that is you are a Jeopardy champion. Am I right? You are. It feels like the uh, distant past, but uh, it is one of those things that uh, sticks with you. Once a uh, Jeopardy contestant, always a member of the Jeopardy community. So we had a world cycling champion on the podcast already, and I referred to her as world champion Molly Van Howling the entire podcast. So I may have to refer to you as Jeopardy champion Vanita Kailasanov the whole time. So if I do that, I'm very sorry. <laughs> I am used to it. I used to be Jeopardy girl. So that also works. Yeah, I like Jeopardy champ or Jeopardy champion. So Jeopardy champion, Benita, tell us a little bit. When did you win Jeopardy? What was the final Jeopardy question? And do you still watch the show? So I was on Jeopardy a few times. I first went on for the college tournament when I was a sophomore at Stanford and I had my oversized uh, sweatshirt. And oddly, the prize that year was actually a Volvo V40 station wagon, which is an interesting choice for a college champion. And then I ended up driving it around for all of my 20s. And then a few months before I had my first kid, the electronics started fritzing out. And so I didn't have the station wagon for when I finally had the kid. Very odd. But that's like, uh, that's like backwards. How are they giving a station wagon to a college student? I think they just want you to drive and it's a Volvo. Yeah. So they want you to be safe and drive slowly. <laughs> Which is, you know, consistent with the general, you know, composition of the Jeopardy contestant pool. But that's it was fair, a great fair. experience. But um, the we filmed at UCLA Poly Pavilion, which is hostile territory if you're from Stanford. Uh, at least I wasn't from USC. But yeah, that's the marching, right, I like the <laughs> The marching band marched onto stage playing the Jeopardy theme song, which is just this incredibly surreal experience. But to this day, when I hear the Jeopardy theme music, like the whole like, oh, I'm in game mode, like kicks into gear. So to your question, but do I watch Jeopardy? I do, but I generally keep it on mute until the theme song is done because it still like gets the competitive gets juices firing. That's yeah. crazy. I, I wonder if we should have started this podcast with the Jeopardy theme song. Uh, I wonder if we could argue that's fair use, I suppose, as we lo- as we get into here, maybe it would get you fired up to do, do this podcast. Next time we have you on, I think I may have to play the Jeopardy music in the background. <laughs> That so that will set quite a scene. Were you sitting in Paul Pavilion, like the 15, 16,000 foot square foot, you know, or seating basketball arena, that huge arena? That's where you did your, your recording? Yep. Yeah. So the wow, college chairman goes to different colleges 
And then after I did the college tournament, I went back for the Tournament of Champions, which was in the Sony Picture Studios in Culver City, which is a smaller venue, obviously. But what's neat there is that you then, when you're having lunch and whatnot, get to see all of the folks who are otherwise on the Sony Pictures lot. And so we saw like Seth Rogen and other folks who were doing their thing. I see. That's cool. That's so cool. So what was the final Jeopardy question when you won the first time? see it was a two-day it was a two-day final I think the final one was maybe countries or capitals and it was you know identifying the capital of a country that was named after an explorer and they might have thrown in the 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 country was what's known as serendip or something to that effect this is so cool. So did you watch Jeopardy growing up? Was it like something you aspired to do or was it when you got to college and you're like, well, I'm really bright. I could actually win this. I should try out for it. We used to have it burble on during dinner time. And then I did various, you know, geography bees, high school quiz, it's academic, all of that through high school. So it wasn't completely an accident, but entering into the tournament was an accident. My friend just dropped my name on a postcard, which is going to date me. But yes, you used to submit your interest by putting a postcard in the mail. So she did that. And then I got a call saying, oh, we have a Jeopardy, you know, contestant screening opportunity in Baltimore. And I was living in DC at the time. You've been selected. So I just went in and things worked out. This is all right. So I got to ask you this. So Aaron Rodgers, Green Bay Packer quarterback, or maybe soon to be Green Bay Packer quarterback, He's a Cal Bear. I know he's your rival. What are your thoughts on him potentially being the future host of Jeopardy? I I like his enthusiasm. I think there are probably a couple other folks who maybe are a little further ahead in line. If you got a phone call and they said Jeopardy champion Vanita Kailasanov, would you like to come try out to be the next host of Jeopardy? but you'd have to leave your law practice. Is it something you would consider? How could I go on without you as a colleague? In- no, that's not the right inconceivable. answer. The right answer is inconceivable. <laughs> the right answer is yes. Yes, I would listen. But I mean, look, that, that we can segue into talking about what you your practice focuses on because that tells uh, me and our listeners that you like what you do. You love what you do so much that you may not go back to Jeopardy. So digital health, Benita, tell us about what's happening in the industry right now, what you do to help clients and where we're going next. Okay. How long do we have? Um, We have have as much time as you want, because I I mean, this is a great topic and I think people really want to know about it. So, I mean, in terms of trends, I think the pandemic just accelerated a lot of what we were seeing pre-pandemic. And I think it was the confluence of a few things. One is obviously people wanted and needed to engage more remotely. Um, the laws that were in place that you know affected things like you know practice of medicine across state lines, telemedicine, reimbursement, and the like, we saw a relaxation. And I think now that the genie is out of the bottle, even post-pandemic, we're going to retain some of the additional flexibility that came out of last year in particular. I think 
people's comfort with technology has also increased. And a lot of the traditional models of what people thought needed to be done in person have been broken down. And as we think about increasing access to care, um, even you know, traditional notions of diversity, equity, and access from that standpoint, digital health can be just an incredibly powerful tool to accomplish a lot of those goals. I think the flip side of it though is still there is currently more access for the haves rather than the have nots. And so I'm really interested to see in the coming years, how we can think about digital tool, digital health tools as a method of democratizing access to and use of healthcare. So when we say digital health, can you give our listeners like examples of what that means? And, and when you say sort of access to care, what types of digital health and what types of care are you talking about? Sure. So it can be anything from a connected device, like you might have, um, you know, a glucose monitor that, that interfaces with a cloud-based platform. And there could be, you know, some intricacies around how your, you know, glucose dosing changes. It could be driven by some artificial intelligence, which is a whole other interesting overlay that we and the regulators are wrapping our heads around. Um, could be as simple as, you know, a particular kind of app that makes certain recommendations. An interesting discussion that we're currently having, and we work very closely on the tech deal side with our regulatory colleagues on this is, how do you, when you're advising clients, think about where you wanna fall on the spectrum of FDA regulation and the inherent tension there is in many respects between wanting to fall into a kind of lower tier of regulation, more enforcement discretion by FDA by making your algorithms transparent, by showing clinicians kind of exactly how you are taking inputs and turning them into outputs. And how do you balance that with IP models, which in part are based on, you know, if you're driven by trade secrets, certainly, the protection of this information and not being transparent. Your secret sauce might be your proprietary algorithm, which you absolutely do not want to disclose, right? That, that can, you know, to, to your realm, Evan, like really change your IP strategy if you're going a patent-based route versus a trade secret route. So, so if you have a, if you have, sorry to interrupt there, so if you have a client and you're going and you want to come go to market with a product, you're talking about the, the analysis that you are advising the client on, the client's making the decision. Do I go to the FDA and disclose everything that I'm doing, my data sets, my, maybe my algorithm so I can seek approval versus I have this IP regime, whether it's trade secrets or maybe it's a patent or some copyrights and you're trying to figure out and balance, what do I do here? And how do I, you know, which path do I take? Are there steps that you use to, to help clients like make that decision? Do you, is it guided by health in terms of like getting approval for products at the FDA? What, is, what are some of the things that come into play here? Yeah, absolutely. There's a continuum of how FDA approaches um, regulation and enforcement in this area. You know, on one side of the spectrum, you have I would say, you know, great enforcement discretion. FDA kind of looks at 
what you're doing says, okay, this is more in kind of the general wellness category. You're not really doing anything that, you know, is invasive. You know, it looks at what, what's the worst possible thing that could happen, you know? And if it's not that bad, might fall into the enforcement discretion category, might fall into clinical decision support if it's something that's geared towards physicians. So another trend we've been seeing is a greater emphasis on digital health tools direct to consumer. And so an area where we spend a lot of time counseling folks is on, okay, are you, is your app or is your digital health offering going to be consumer focused, physician focused? And it's in many ways, not as easy to morph from one into the other. And so it's important to spend time thinking about who is your audience? Who is your user? What is their level of sophistication? What are the risks? Um, and, and how does your particular offering fit into their overall ecosystem of care? And then on the other side of the FDA regulation spectrum is something where, you know, this is a, a, an app or a technology, let's say that's implanted and is, you know, then still, you know, com communicating because it's a connected device with, you know, various servers with, um, you know, a number of different service providers. There are lots of potential, you know, cybersecurity and other risks associated with the complexity of, you know, an implantable device, which then is interfacing with a lot of potential places where, you know, hackers could come in and, and, you know, run amok, right? I mean, that was one of the interesting wrinkles that we, I think, heard with um, Dick Cheney's um, heart implant was there was a real cybersecurity risk associated with that. So that's another very interesting area where, you know, I collaborate with other folks in our DC office on thinking through that medical device cybersecurity overlay and what do you try to protect from a kind of planned contractual perspective versus what are the inherent risks of that increased connectivity, which gives you great rewards, but also comes with, you know, these additional um, factors to consider. All right. So that was a lot. And that was, that's incredible. So I want to talk about both scenarios you just talked about. So the, the first one was app. So you're first deciding if I'm going to go for an or I'm a company and I'm going to build an app, maybe I'm going to do it for a hospital system or for a doctor or physicians. And the other potential, I suppose, is what you mentioned is going direct to consumer, which would be you and I download an app. It's maybe connected to our, our Apple Watch or Samsung Watch or whatever. I'll, I'll be uh, equal opportunity there. Um, and what do you do in that scenario? So obviously you're, you're a lawyer like I am. Um, you work on sort of guiding these clients, like if, if you're going to go to the doctor out or the physician out of the hospital system, you come in as they're in the development phase and you help them with their contracting. How, how, where do you play into that and how does it work? So there are a couple of different ways in which lawyers get involved and it's not just me. Um, what's interesting yeah, is- Yeah, but you're my guest on the podcast. So I want to hear what you do because this is so neat. <laughs> Um, so there, there are many layers to this. One is just fundamentally when you're contracting with physicians, if the doctor is the one who has an idea in different states, um, there are different structural issues around what the doctor has to own and be making decisions about and what they can outsource and how they outsource it. So just yesterday, 
I was speaking with um, some really great um, femtech uh, innovators who wanted to create a care ecosystem around, um, around a women's health issue. And they wanted to come up with basically an app. They wanted to have involvement of doctors. They wanted to make sure that you know, um, certain medications, certain supplements would be available you know, through this app seamlessly. So you, that's a whole lot of different issues to consider. There's everything from the corporate practice of medicine. There's the who is doing the actual development of the software. Are we making sure that the IP and technology is housed in the right uh, company? When you're thinking about um, who's going to pay for this? Is it going to be self-pay? Are you going to try to um, work with either state or federal um, kind of healthcare uh, programs like Medicare, Medicaid, that's a whole other issue, especially when doctors are involved in potentially prescribing things. And so it's this like everything you think about that's complex about the US healthcare system comes to a head with this like healthy splash of IP tech and privacy. And so that's where you need the lawyers to help understand okay, what are what are the fundamental questions we need to understand? What are the data flows? Who's going to pay? How are you going to protect the IP and technology? And are there these state and federal regulatory considerations that could crush your business model before you even get off the ground? And so that's why we say it's really good to work with a team that has that transactional IP and regulatory expertise, because all of those are, are involved. And I think that's what makes digital health so interesting is that it's not just this kind of formulaic, okay, you want to make an app. Here's your app development agreement. It's much more around who are you trying to reach? How are they going to be interacting? How do you think about, you know, what an individual user can meaningfully consent to versus what is something their employer or a hospital system is consenting to on their behalf? And so when we look at this, from more of a kind of traditional medical device perspective and thinking about connected devices, um, device manufacturers are very keenly attuned to the fact that in many respects, they never actually have a direct relationship with the person who's using their device. And when you think about it, that's a little astonishing, where it's like the data from somebody who has a device implanted in them when is their opportunity to really consent to how their data is going to be used? I mean, the doctor is generally the one who's deciding we think this is the right piece of technology for you. So I just think all of that is really neat to think about. Um, and especially as we start thinking about more patient-centric care and patient engagement, um, how do we really bring the patient into a lot of these solutions? So this now freaks me out because when I go in to get a, a surgery, thankfully, I don't need any implantable devices, but I have to get a hernia surgery where they're going to use implantable mesh. So when I sign the consent form with the doctor, I wonder if I'm like signing away rights to actual manufacturer as well. I haven't really thought about that, but now you're freaking me out. So thank you. But also same as self-promotion, Benita, that was terrific on what we do here. Um, so you tied, this was the, the femtech company that's like in the startup space. Is there a difference between, uh, if a company is in the startup space going through this type of process and analysis versus 
an established player either in big tech or in big pharma or in you know the established medical device manufacturers? Yeah, I think you've hit on something really important there. Um, another trend that we've seen in the digital health space is basically um, a a growing appreciation of the different risks associated with different counterparties and the sensitivity to those risks based on where they are in this kind of life sciences realm. So let's take it first from the side of somebody contracting with a tech company. If you're dealing with a startup company, there are all the associated risks of does the startup know what they're doing? Are they going to be around? If you're thinking about something that is a long-term solution, what happens if that startup company goes bust? Who's going to be maintaining, supporting, um, you know, upgrading, updating um, the software? If you're dealing with big tech, on the other hand, big tech's strength is in this massive processing and use of large quantities of data. And that can be very good when you're trying to solve things like a pandemic, where it's great to have massive data sets, have those numbers crunched, see the trends in an interesting way. It can be good from an FDA perspective on one level, because if eight different pharma manufacturers of drugs are all pooling their data sets and having analytics run by a big tech company, FDA will know it's a robust data set. On the flip side, you run into interesting antitrust concerns and you run into the question of, gosh, how much do I really want this tech company to know about me and some of my most sensitive data? And then if you're on the other side, if you're on the life sciences side, where the traditional emphasis has been on how is my product performing? Is it safe? Is it efficacious? What is the appropriate dosing? You're sitting on a treasure trove of data that maybe you haven't been mining to its full potential. And when do you share that data? What insights do you allow your kind of data analytics partner to glean and to improve their algorithms versus what do you think should be your proprietary information that you really get, you know, either exclusive use of or primary use of, and how do you exclude others? And so just thinking back to the AI reference I made earlier, when we're structuring collaborations, it's very easy to think about, oh gosh, this is a collaboration. Let's just keep it simple. Let's make everything joint. Everybody owns what they bring to the table, anything that jointly developed is jointly owned. And then things that are improvements of each party's inputs at the end of the day, if things fall apart, each party walks away with those improvements. No harm, no foul, right? But how does that actually play out if one side is contributing data and the other side has an algorithm that's being trained on the data, right? Is the algorithm going to be forced to forget everything it learned? It's not really, that's not really practical. So how do you think about that. I don't know how both sides could take both the algorithm and the data with them. And especially if you're talking about a collaboration where one party is a startup and they're coming with their new idea or new technology, they almost need that data to improve their technology going forward. So in a split, obviously you're talking about what I call a rising IP or developed IP, mm -hmm. but I think it's broader than that. The way you're describing it, it's both that plus the data that 
you're overlaying or underlaying on it. And that's, that's kind of scary. So you come in there and help the parties. You, I assume you do both sides, obviously yep. not in the same transaction, but uh, in different transactions. So you're advising different clients in different ways, depending upon whether you are the large tech or the large life sciences company or the startup trying to break into the industry. Exactly. The, the risks and benefits are different and how we think about allocating the risks in a fair way that ultimately leads to kind of hopefully the successful development, you know, manufacturing commercialization of the device. That's what I'm really there to do. So if we go back to the first thing you said, the when it's an apps, when it's direct to consumer, the consumers are the ones that are actually using it and tracking it. So I've talked many times on this podcast about the fact I play Pokemon Go with my son. Uh, and if you turn adventure mode on, it tracks my walking and my health data. Uh, I assume that I'm signing away my rights to that data and it's being collected by either Niantic, the founder of, of Pokemon Go, or somebody else. Um, what types of issues are at play there when it's actually the users, the ones that are supplying constantly? And in Pokemon Go case, millions of users all over the world are supplying constantly their data upload somewhere to somebody. Yeah. So, so complex. And so you have, you know, probably when you downloaded the app, you clicked some sort of, I agree. And you probably didn't read it because it was a very small font and you were probably on your phone. And so was that consenting for, you know, the purposes of the relevant uh, legal regimes? And, you know, when you're talking about international, right? I mean, the cross-border transfer of data presents a whole host of issues. I know Jamie has been on the podcast in the past and she says, hi. <laughs> so that does raise an important question for me, which is if this goes well and I come on five times, will I get a jacket or Ooh, some other? Yes. Look, you are the first guest to talk about merch. We totally need merch. We got to figure out what it's going to say. I, I haven't been able to develop like any kind of catchphrase or anything, but maybe you could help me with that. Uh, but yes, you may get something, a jacket I like, maybe like branded t-shirts or something. And what a terrific idea. Thank you, Vanita. Thank you, Evan. With that, with that aside, back to the uh, cross-border transfer of data. Um, there's so much interesting work going on, especially when we think about data transfer, certainly between the US and the EU, um, the potential for these new standard contractual clauses to come into play, and how do you overlay, you know, what is negotiable versus non-negotiable versus is essentially a contract of adhesion, whereas a user, even if you're not comfortable with what's being done on, on one level or the other, do you have any kind of nuanced right or is it just opt out if you don't like what we're doing, don't play the game. Yeah, and, and what happens an option, if you obviously <laughs> right exactly? And what happens? This is an area I spend a lot of time thinking about. What happens if there's a material change in the terms? Um, how how do you provide notice to users? What do you think about the data collection to date? You know, with this, I I think I heard earlier today there's something like 120 data protection laws around the world. You know, when you're the person who's designing the applicable policies, how do you think about meaningfully compliant, complying with 120 laws around the world? And when you're thinking about specifically apps, 
it's very easy in the Apple App Store to just click the like make your app available everywhere button, right? That pushes or your app. Or the Android app. store Or the Android store. The <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, in, in uh the Amazon in the Wait, Amazon. What is it called? Yeah. I think uh, Amazon App Store, one word. Apple App Store, two words, Google Play. Yeah, it's Google Play. I think I think I've covered my bases. Yep, there we go. And so actually, it, for, the, for the lawyers in the audience, when you're drafting EULAs, make sure you have the appropriate flowdowns for each of those three sources to the extent you have apps available in each of those stores, because the terms that Google, Apple, and Amazon require are slightly different. Oh, dude, so, that's the first free legal advice I think that's being given. We had a lot of firsts here on this on this episode, Vinny. I love it. All right, keep going. Sorry to interrupt you. Hopefully first, but not last. I expect an invitation to come back. So... Um, so back to back to thinking about how all of these different layers of contracting and consents and opt-outs work together. And then, you know, if you're doing this under kind of this umbrella of either your employer or, you know, you have an insurance plan or, you know, some other kind of health benefit plan, and you're part of that ecosystem, when when the entity that's actually paying for its user to get a benefit of the service is, um, is structuring the agreement, how does that entity think about how its contract interacts with the terms that an individual user might just click through without thinking and without negotiating? And at what point does that overarching entity try to protect its individual users by saying, Regardless of what these users say, you, you, you know, counterparty can't do X or Y with the data, or you need our permission to do X or Y. So that's an interesting additional kind of complexity where it's like, even if something is happening directly between a provider and a user, if there is this other, you know, payer kind of in this generic notion of payment, or kind of other party that's involved and has an interest um, for reputational or other reasons. How do their wishes get reflected into this? Yeah, I mean, so in my Pokemon Go example, because I love talking about Pokemon Go, so I'll always go back there. You know, I click through, obviously, my son clicks through, and I, I'm sure Niantic collects the data on the amount of steps I walk. But the question is, is are they selling that data to advertisers marketing that data to advertisers to say look the pokemon go players in the state of colorado walk an average of blank more miles or kilometers per month than others you should advertise you healthy advertisers should advertise and be targeted ads in the game to this particular subset of people versus you know the users in a different state are not walking as much you should advertise hog and dogs to them I mean, this, that's kind of scary. I haven't really thought about it, but I have just clicked through agreements probably drafted like ones that you probably work on. Probably so. All right, Benita, we're getting close to the end of the time, so we cannot end this podcast without doing a couple rounds of Jeopardy to test your knowledge, to see how updated you are on certain things. They're all going to be related to something in your life or related to what you do. Uh, and we will have a final Jeopardy question as well. Um, you know, whether you come back on the podcast may depend on how you answer these questions. So the first one is the easiest. Are you, our listeners can't see my background here. The first category 
is authors. I'm going to give you the book name and you're going to tell me the author. And the first one is uh, science fiction authors and it is Brave New World. Aldous Huxley. Who is Aldous Huxley? That's what I was, eh. Yeah, it's right. You got to answer in the question. Okay. All right. Second question in this category is Dune. Uh, who is Abear? Who is Frank Herbert is the correct answer. Herbert? I'm sorry. I've never actually seen it. I was thinking H-E-R-B-E-R-T and I just mispronounced it. Oh, yeah. That's, mm. yeah all right. All right. Mm. Maybe I'll give you that mm. one. Okay, the next one is healthcare inventions. I'm going to give you the name of the inventor. You can tell me what they're most known for. First one is Victor Hermelin. You stumped me. Yes, yes. It is time release capsules. <laughs> All right, this, this one you may get. This is I picked this just because it sounds pretty good. The second question is, Samuel Siegfried Carl Ritter von Bosch. Oh, goodness gracious. Don't know. The Sifco book gamometer, better known as the blood pressure machine. Ah. All right, now we're going to go something more familiar to you that hopefully you will know. These are sporting cardinal. I need you to tell me their sport. First question, Todd Lichty. Swimming? He was a men's basketball player for the Stanford Cardinal in the late 1990s, and he was awesome. Mm. All right, next one is Tara Vanderveer. Oh, amazing Stanford women's basketball coach who has been greatly under-respected. So happy with the team's performance this year. Just won her second national championship this year. Okay, the final category for the final Jeopardy is Arnold Porter Partners. Final former Arnold Porter, Abe Fortas, argued Gideon versus Rainwright in what year? I would do the Jeopardy music, but I know you told me it gets you all fired up, so I won't. 1959. Well, pretty close. It was 1963. I'm so <sighs> excited that I stumped you on multiple questions. It's amazing. Former always go with your first instinct. I'm yeah. like, gosh. Jeopardy champion Vanita Kailasanath, our guest on today's episode of TMT Time. Vanita, thank you so much for being here. We'll have you back. You better study up because I'm going to come at you with some more Jeopardy-related questions. Really appreciate your time today. I look forward to it. Thanks so much for having me, Evan.